Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hey, Jim. Hello and welcome to Social Distance. This is Social Distance, our podcast. I am Jim. I am a doctor. And I'm joined, as always, by Catherine. Why are you acting so weird? Because we got that note where we were supposed to, you know, introduce the podcast at the top, as people do, and I was trying to do it. I like your shock jock voice better, frankly. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Social Distance. Drive Time Radio with Catherine and I am, as always, Jim. Maybe you should do this. You are always Jim. Okay, so this is a this is a show from The Atlantic where uh, the two of us who are journalists at The Atlantic talk about pandemic questions, very informal. We just talk to each other. We call other people with questions we have, and uh, we hope that it is useful to the listeners. So that's um, that's the deal with this show. My name is Catherine, and Jim is, as we just heard, always very Jim. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I wanted to revisit something that we've talked about before that I just keep not understanding, which is... One of the things that's strange about reading the news during this time is you have parallel sort of uh, news items coming at you. You might in one day read, oh, this was the biggest day for online shopping ever. And like, you know, everyone bought a ton of crap and is going to get it delivered to their house. You know, what an interesting economic story. And then on the next page, you also read that an outrageous number of kids don't have enough to eat right now. Mm-hmm. And that dissonance has always, of course, been a part of this country, like that that always exists. But it's so striking right now that it's hard to ignore. And it feels like there, there are two, I mean, we've we've talked about this before, but there are kind of two pandemics going on. One is people who uh, have kept their jobs or can work remotely or are comfortable in whatever way, you know, like us, where it's it's annoying <laughs> and difficult, but we talk about, you know, our dogs or whatever. And uh, there is another experience that people are having, which is, you know, abandonment by social service programs in the government and really no, no way to support themselves. It's uh, just a sort of outrageous disparity that feels nonsensical. Yeah. And there are the health effects of that, obviously, too. It's not just the virus, but when people can't eat well. From a medical perspective, out of all of the many things about this time that are bad for health, everything from not wanting to go to do your regular preventative medicine because the hospitals are overwhelmed, to um, depression, to hunger, like what is the, what's the most concerning thing to you from a medical perspective about this time? Oh, man. Well, obviously, all those things are serious and can be very serious. I think when you talk about food insecurity, that's something you see the effects of more gradually than some of the other things we're seeing. So if people are experiencing anxiety, uh, depression, insomnia, those things are you know starting to be reported now and be understood. And when people experience food insecurity, they don't... Um, you you know at least in this country don't starve uh, and experience the effects of starvation. They tend to just be on very limited 
budgets and eat the cheapest possible food uh, which is not healthy food for you and that accumulates those effects we don't see immediately mm-hmm. when you can't give fruits and vegetables to your kids those are effects that you see decades later as opposed to other things that may be able to be recovered from there are long lasting health effects from this right whenever people just have to be like, okay, we're just going to eat ramen or mac and cheese or, or white bread, chips and candy or whatever, you know, we can afford in the moment. That's the sort of thing that will be very insidious. And I worry about mm-hmm. a lot in years to come. Let's talk to someone who maybe could be a little more solutions oriented, because I feel like we're both despairing a little bit. Well, not despairing, just like WTF America. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why? This It just yeah. feels ridiculous. I mean, this is all tied up with all of the relief conversations that are going on. You know, this is a piece of it. But hunger in particular is such a outrageous issue in such a rich country. It just, uh, I think if we can understand that better, we might understand a lot of things better. The pandemic right now is at its worst. And yet it's been eight months since Congress passed economic relief. Mm-hmm. So... Our episode in two parts today. Question one is how many people are hungry right now and what should be done about it? Question two is what is the government up to? Isn't this what they should be taking care of? And if if so, why aren't they? Well, yeah, they should be. I mean, right? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe there's something I don't understand about the government. Maybe I'm very confused. But these things have explanations, you know, not to get too political on a show about health, but these things are intertwined, you know. Okay, so who are we calling? So we're going to call Luis Guardia. He's the president of the Food Research and Action Center, or FRAC. They're a 50-year-old nonprofit that works on poverty-related hunger and undernutrition. Hello, this is Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Luis. Hi, Jim. Good to talk to you. Thanks for making time for us. Let me ask you to start. Say we can rewind to 2019, back when we all got on subways and went to parties with abandon. (laughs) Um, What was the situation with hunger in this country then? Right. Well, we certainly had a hunger problem before COVID happened. A lot of it, though, uh, remained unseen. There were a lot of misconceptions about who was hungry. But goodness, when, when COVID hit in spring and March, I think everybody was shocked to see how quickly things changed. And those hunger numbers just went through the roof really quickly. Uh, We've gone beyond this notion of being food insecure in the sense of not knowing where the next meals were going to come from, or they're going to be enough. People actually started disrupting their meal patterns. People actually went hungry. Or if they they didn't uh, go hungry, they hadn't had to make the tough decisions about maybe not paying the rent or maybe not paying their medical bill or maybe not paying a utility bill. So uh, the the problem had come home to roost in in, in a very meaningful and a very sharp and an incredibly fast way that we were just not anticipating. So it sounds like you have a sort of short-term, at least anxiety, uh, about inability to know where your next meal is going to come from. And then longer Mm -hmm. term, I imagine there are health consequences of not eating well, um, right. of having to eat junk food or, you know, yeah. whatever's available versus being able to make healthy choices. 
Yeah, one of, one of the things that is concerning to us is that because people are having to forego meals and uh, they're being undernourished, it's a big concern when folks don't have enough to eat in the midst of a pandemic, it can cause a whole lot more problems down the line. Right. So what kind of resources are, are available for people? I imagine, especially in this pandemic, there are many people who are experiencing food insecurity for the first time. Yep, that's true. And, you know, may not be familiar with what resources are available. Where's the first place to go and the second place? And are those <laughs> systems functioning? The way this country has been dealing with food insecurity, you know, uh, unfortunately, we just haven't had the leadership at the highest levels of government that uh, have been necessary to uh, to deal with this problem in, in a comprehensive way. Early on in the pandemic, we, I mean, we all remember seeing the incredibly dramatic uh, wide angle drone shots on the six o'clock news of miles of cars queued up outside of food banks. And that just was was heartbreaking and everybody, uh, everybody knows that. But uh, the food banks were quickly and still remain overwhelmed uh, with this. So there's still a, a significant amount of demand. But what was heartbreaking for, for us at, at FRAC was knowing that there are solutions at hand. There are systems at hand like SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, that we know, uh, working with our friends at Feeding America, that for every one meal the Feeding America network provides, SNAP provides nine. Mm. Why do you think the food banks are, uh, do, do you think there's less knowledge about SNAP or is SNAP, it yeah, just doesn't have I, a marketing department or like what's the, it, what's um, the issue? I would venture to guess it does not have a marketing department, no, <laughs> but it, it is, yeah, it, it's, it's much less known. Say, say someone listening to this is sort of mm -hmm. just experiencing this for the first time and doesn't know where to go. Like what's yeah. the first number they call or website they visit to try to figure out even how they would go about getting SNAP benefits? Well, a first good website uh, to go to, uh, they, they could go, uh, they can usually uh, check out their uh, state Department of Health or Human Services website. They can also check out the FRAC website, uh, fracfrac.org. And on that, we have a list of all the various state anti-hunger groups that we work with. And, and these groups all have outreach programs that uh, will help people get onto SNAP and, and help them uh, identify their qualifications and, and get them through that process. And tell them about other programs that could be available. If they have children who can qualify for the uh, meal programs, uh, people don't realize that's a federal program as well. Young moms and very little children can have access to programs like the Women, Infants, and Children Program or, or WIC. Uh, so there, there are solutions there that, that, that are proven, but just not uh, utilized uh, to the extent that they should be. So is the problem not, like, what needs to happen? It sounds like what you're saying is the problem right now is not that there aren't the resources, but that they're just not getting to people. Is that an accurate summary? They need to get to people, but they also need to be increased. Uh, we, mm -hmm. we know uh, SNAP in and of itself uh, does not provide enough for people to, to buy a very robust, uh, nutritious diet. We know, we mm -hmm. know that a lot of people who are on SNAP uh, sometimes have to make hard choices about stretching out those food dollars. So that's why boosting the SNAP benefit has been so critically important. And, and just to kind of put a little bit more context around this is the government did this very quickly in response to the Great Recession in 2008, 2009. 
the SNAP maximum benefit amount was increased by around 13 to 14%. And so what we've been calling for is an increase of about 15%, but we should also look at pegging the basic SNAP benefit during uh, non-pandemic times, kind of uh, looking to see if, if it's the right benefit anyway, because it probably needs to be increased in order to be able to provide people with a more robust and more nutritious diet. Uh, kind of going back to the other question, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, in addition to other things folks can do, that they, they, people we want people to engage with their elected leaders and their members of Congress and senators and tell them, if you want to solve hunger, boost SNAP. These are the kind of programs that are important. So right. all that's always been kind of an important part of what, what kind of gets me going in the morning. And you became head of the Food Research and Action Center just before the pandemic started yep. and have seen food insecurity increase and, and SNAP not not increase. Correct, uh, yeah. Wh- what's it been like? Has it been exasperating to watch the crisis grow without any action since March? Yeah, there were some very small, what we call down payments on SNAP in the early parts of the pandemic. Some more administrative money that was given uh, to, to the SNAP program. But yeah, the, the real meaningful thing in terms of having uh, the SNAP boost increase is just, you're right, it has been exasperating. Um, not only because we know it's effective, it rides the regular rails of commerce. It provides a tremendous amount of more convenience and greater dignity for, for people to, to access food. Oh, and, and also as economists are kind of scratching their heads and thinking, how can we get the economy going again? And you hear people talking about fiscal stimulus tools. SNAP is one of the most effective stimulus tools there is. Mm-hmm. Uh, by We know that for every dollar of benefit in SNAP, the economy grows $1.50 to $1.80. That's a pretty good return on investment, if you ask me. Why wouldn't we just be Although... pouring money into it? I don't understand. That sounds good. Well, and why should we even have to make that argument? Like, it's good yeah. investment to have people have food. Yeah. I mean, no, I, I, I understand that's sort yeah. of the language of, of Washington, but it's also kind of just a step back from it, kind of right. a very weird that we have to do that, right? It is. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit uh, disheartening that, you know, we always say every tool in the toolbox, you know, we're, we're hearing some positive language come from the, from the Biden-Harris team. So we're hopeful that, that, that they can step up and share some leadership on this. Well, thank you for spending this time with us and uh, giving us some of this information. I think it's really, really helpful to just remind people what resources are available and also to remind people who are not struggling with this right now that, uh, that a lot of people are. So yeah. uh, thank you for spending the time with us. Well, Jim and Catherine, I, I, I thank you both uh, so much for reaching out. And um, thanks for the conversation. Thank you. Yeah. Nice to talk. All right. Take care. Bye. Best of luck. Thanks a lot. Bye. Okay. So Luis is far too diplomatic, I think, to tell us whose fault this all is. But I always yeah. want it to be somebody's fault or rather to understand why this isn't happening. Um, What do I know? But it feels like it's pretty much a no-brainer and the only thing to do right now. And uh, it's just not happening. So I don't get it. Yeah. I think we we focus a lot on the show on the actual logical arguments. You know, what would be the humanitarian thing to do? What would maximize the health benefit? What would be best economically? Um, And we forget that at a policy level, so much of the decision-making has very little to do with that sort of argumentation and more to do with just what agendas align with what and that's the actual reason these things don't 
happen right or do we don't we don't think like a shark so so who thinks like a shark no no you and i were guppies okay jim who do you want to talk to who's not a guppy okay you know i i say this reluctantly uh we should talk to david graham uh he's a staff writer at the atlantic longtime antagonist of me but i think a really smart guy (laughs) let's fact check that with him okay Hey, David. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? It's been so long. Uh, it has, yeah. I, I I have two questions for you. One is, uh, can you introduce yourself to the audience? I, I'm David Graham, and I'm a staff writer uh, at The Atlantic, and I cover um, all things politics, basically. And jazz. <laughs> and jazz, occasionally. Jim said that you're his number one antagonist. Is this true or false? Oh, I think I'm no higher than number three or four. <laughs> <laughs> But you're up there. Um, well, I respect and support your antagonism. Yeah. Um, um, anyway. You have a vision for understanding the psychology of politics, you know, that I just, I never could. So it would be helpful for us if you could break down some of what's happening right now. I'll do what I can. Okay. Why won't the government help? <laughs> Partisanship. Same problem as in everything else. It's interesting because... COVID relief seems to have fallen victim to a really pretty basic difference between the parties, which is Democrats think that state governments and local governments should have a lot of you know, power to do what they want and governments should, should be in control and they want to give money to those governments to bail them out for you know, losses they have had because of COVID. Um, and Republicans want to make sure that businesses don't get sued by workers who catch COVID. And so they want to basically create a a liability waiver. So get people out of the possibility of lawsuits for the most case if their employees get sick. And that really is where things have been hung up for months now. Will there be state and local relief and will there be this liability waiver? I don't get it. (laughs) It doesn't make a lot of sense. I think that's not you. I think that is the problem. You know, both sides agree that we need to do something. And I think they have differences about what the size of that should be. But it's really this just basic philosophical difference about who you're going to help. Are we going to help business owners or are we going to help government? And the answer is because we can't agree neither. Yeah, I think both sides keep thinking that they're one, somebody's going to blink and they're going to be able to cut a deal on that. And that's where we've been for, again, for months. So the size of the deal, Democrats kept asking for $2 trillion until last week when economic worries prompted them to concede and okay a $908 billion framework? Mm -hmm. Was that on the basis that they were hoping that more would come later? Well, before the election, they anticipated having a stronger hand. And they thought they were going to do better in the Senate, and then they would really have Republicans in a vice. They would either want to make some sort of deal before the before, you know, the end of the Trump term is going to be more favorable to them or else they were going to have to deal with the Democratic Congress and president come January. And and so that was going to be the pinch point. But since the Senate is still up for grabs and Democrats lost some ground in the House, suddenly their negotiating position is a little bit weaker. And I think they're looking at the situation and saying something needs to be done now. And we don't quite have the stomach anymore uh, to hold out. I feel naive asking this, but I I really do mean it. Isn't this ridiculous? Yes, it is totally ridiculous. You are not naive. You are completely right. And, you know, it's a classic situation where everybody agrees something needs to be done. Um, So there's not even really a disagreement on the fundamental idea. The White House agrees. Democrats agree. 
Republicans agree, um, but they're hung up on these, what, what I think to them seem really important, but to most people seem like relatively minor points. Why, how well, is that not the sign of an extremely broken government? It is a sign of an extremely broken government. And it's interesting because over the summer and in the spring, we had really pretty impressive efforts by Congress to get relief, like just on a scale that we've never seen before. The speed right. and the size of what they did was and it really kind, kind of miraculous. And it really helped, yeah. Um, which seemed like a good sign that maybe even if, you know, the longstanding problems remain, maybe the crisis had forced enough clarity that for a short time there was some sort of working system. But now we're right back into where we were. That tends to be the one time we come together is in acute emergencies, right? Whether it's uh, the beginnings of a war or right after a natural disaster, as in like a few days after. <laughs> but then as soon <laughs> yeah. as we get used to a problem, then it's just gridlock as far as actually addressing it. I think that's exactly it. People have gotten used to it and they've, you know, members of Congress have come to, to a certain degree to sort of accept the status quo. And so they've lost that sense of urgency. And again, so not all is, of them. Like, I don't want to draw, I don't want to paint with No, they're all the same. Broad, they're all the same. <laughs> brush, but clearly as a body, it isn't working. I, I think there's some real long-held ideological stuff here. You know, the idea that um, we should just give state and local governments and let them spend that money is something that is a really democratic belief. But you also have Republicans who just don't want to give money to states that are run by Democrats. And, and I think that is a, a straight party question. But if you look at the liability question, Republicans feel it's really important to cut regulations from businesses. And they think we can't reopen the economy if we don't get the business open. We can't do that without a liability waiver. So that's the place where it's not purely partisanship, but it is, I think, losing perspective and, and missing the point to a great extent. Just to clarify, so we have it for the liability waiver, you're talking about they want to make it so that a business can't be held accountable for creating conditions where its workers get infected. Is that right? Yeah. Basically, if your employees get sick, um, they would be able to sue you, but only under really strict circumstances. And they'd have a really hard time proving that you had been negligent. Like, unless you really went, just did nothing, you would get out of any lawsuit. What What are the chances that something something breaks through and that this can be solved quickly? You know, every day I go back and forth on that, often during the course of the day. This morning, it seemed like maybe things were moving and the White House had put out its own alternative plan, which Democrats didn't like. But the fact that the White House was actually getting involved after weeks of Trump sort of doing nothing but tweeting about the election supposedly being rigged seemed like a good sign. And you had Josh Hawley, a Republican, and Bernie Sanders both saying that there needed to be direct relief to people. So the sort of cross-partisan coalition. And now... By this afternoon, it seems like nothing is really happening and people have retreated to their corners and we're facing a deadline in nine days when the congressional session ends. So, you know, every hour and day that gets lost makes it a little bit bleaker. It seems unthinkable that they wouldn't do something, but we've been in unthinkable situations all year. So, hey, why not? Huh. Why do you like pol covering politics? What, what, <laughs> what intrigues you about this? Yeah. Situation. What is the dark part of you that's really drawn to this? I, I don't know if I should say this in public, but I kind of hate it. Uh. Um, but I think it's it's important. You know, I, I think mm -hmm. these these battles matter a lot and we keep seeing how much politics can affect people's everyday lives. So I think the stakes are really high. But 
it's really messed up and, and bleak. And um, yeah, I, I'm not sure I would say I like it per se. So if in nine days there is not some kind of deal, then how long do people have to wait? Then we have to wait till Congress comes back in January, get a new Congress and see if we can do things a little bit differently, but we'll have the same leaders. The situation will be more acute and maybe people will feel more pressure. You know, we're looking at probably earlier mid-January then. Oh, wow. Is the change of administration going to change anything either logistically or like change the tone in a way that could, could move things? That's the right question. I don't know what the answer is. Joe Biden, you know, says that he can get Republicans to, to talk and he's worked with them. I think the fact that the White House will be engaged makes a big difference. With the exception of the Treasury Secretary, just the administration has really kind of been on the sidelines for most of this. Mm-hmm. And having a White House that mm-hmm. wants to push makes a big difference. But it probably makes more of a difference to have a Republican White House pushing on Mitch McConnell than it does to have a Democratic White House since, you know, McConnell doesn't want to work with Democrats all that badly. Trump actually <laughs> has a little bit of juice, but he is choosing not to use it mostly. So do you think something's going to happen in nine days? Uh, if you put a gun to my head, I would say that they will stumble to some sort of deal, probably not nearly adequate to the challenge, but something. That is the story of our government, right? (laughs) Inadequately stumbling. We do the bare minimum, but not really enough. We saw this with the uh, Great Recession, where we did enough to get the economy back up and going, but not as much as we should have and, and not enough to help all of the people that we could have helped. We were just talking to someone about food insecurity specifically and how the SNAP program is not only a great way to get people more access to food, but is also basically an economic stimulus. Could there be an exception to this gridlock given just the most obvious problem, which is people don't have enough to eat? I think that the place where I see a little bit of optimism on that front is this idea of giving people direct payments which we did earlier in the crisis, and we could do again. The White House is endorsing that now. So that's a place where, you know, if you talk to economists, just giving people money is a really effective way to help them. People know what to do with the money, especially if they're hungry. They know that they need to spend the money on food. And if we can do that, that that does make a difference. But the numbers that are getting bandied around are like 600 bucks, and that will help people, but it will only help people for a while. Right, a one-time $600 payment. Right, exactly. That gets used up and people have to pay rent and they have to eat and suddenly that money is gone. Yeah, it seems like that could go quick. So you've been covering politics for many years, David. Is there anything about the pandemic that has changed sort of how politics works or changed your perspective on how politics works? In some ways, I think the stuff we're seeing in Congress is really an extension of what we've seen before, just in a more acute way. You know, we had all these fiscal battles in the Obama administration, and it was often the same situation. You're pushing to the last minute. Maybe the government shuts down. People don't get what they need, but we stumble through. What has surprised me is how polarized the response has been in terms of electoral politics. If you look at where things were in the election before the pandemic began, and then you look at the final results, it's amazing how little changed. You know, the approval for the president, where people were on these things. It's like, it doesn't matter what the size of the crisis now. People are so polarized and so committed to their side that even something 
this terrible doesn't seem to move them yet. And maybe that'll take a while for that to shake out. Maybe there will be a long-term effect. But for the time being, I'm just stunned by how little really has changed because of the pandemic. That's so strange. Is it like we've just gotten so good at blaming other people that the size of the crisis isn't the issue? Because we'll always find some way to say, well, you know, it's the other side's fault. I think that's right. Yeah. I think that's called Mm. partisanship. Yeah. Like we said, like you said Um, at the beginning, you know, when you used to work like right 10 feet away from me and I'd always come over to you exasperated, like how is this state not expanding Medicaid? How is this crazy thing happening? You would always just be like, yeah, you know, that's, that's the way it works. And it sounds uh, kind of like that's the situation still. Your, your mind has not been blown. Yeah, we came in with, with a broken system and um, we're seeing how a broken system responds. Many things have yeah. been made plain during this time. Yeah. yeah. Um, like the fact that Jim and I don't really have that much to say to each other. Well, it doesn't I help have... that I'm being such a downer either. No, 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 no. This is, it always, it always helps. Um, thank you, David. I, uh, it, it's nice to talk with you, and I, and I hope, you know, that you're doing okay. I hope you are too. Thank you. I hope you're doing fine. <laughs> I'll take it. All right. Thanks for talking talk to, to us, man. David. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's, it's fun. It is fun. It's not a talk fun to you topic, later. but it's fun to talk to you. Okay. Okay. I'm going to stop talking now. Thank you, David. Bye. <laughs> cool. See you later. It's so frustrating that there's not an answer, I guess. It just seems an obvious problem, an obvious solution, and there's no way to make it happen because of our weirdly entrenched incentives, political. Yeah, we have the money. We all want a good economy. We all want people to be healthy. We all want people to be able to feed themselves. We have the system in place that would allow all of these things to happen. We have the mechanism to fund it and the money to fund it. And yet we are not. I just don't know how you can call that anything but a deeply broken system. It's broken. It's so broken. And I don't know what you do about that. We'll do part two next week where we have the solution fixing the system, how to do it quickly and concisely. How is that? Tune in uh, next week. <laughs> Let's talk about something more hopeful next week. Okay. Oh, yeah, the no. other thing. So, you know what? Did you see? What? Well, was it yesterday, today, the first person got the vaccine? In the UK. Well, the first people in the UK got a clinically approved vaccine? Yeah, the first uh, people knowingly got it. Of of course, people got it in the clinical trial. Uh, They just didn't Mm -hmm. know if they got it or not. But yeah. But that's awesome. I will say just that is one thing that is amazing and hopeful. As sort of like frustrating and incomprehensible as our political system is, that is amazing. It it's really is. awesome. It's very exciting. Just like watching somebody get a shot is just, it's so wonderful. And you know what, Catherine? I have a, a secret. Uh-huh. We'll have them next week in the U.S. That's not a secret. They've been saying that. No, we will. It's a secret. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's public information. It hasn't yeah, been approved so yet, so. Oh. Could go okay. either way. All right. Well, let's cross our fingers. Yeah, um, I think so. It, but next week, either way. Let's talk about the vaccine and yes. how it's going to be rolled out. Very okay. curious. I'm sure there will be various uh, interesting controversies, but it's but that is progress. That is not deadlock. Right. That is uh, gridlock. That's um that's progress, which is amazing and wonderful. Yeah. And we'll talk about it next week. 
None, no more of this soul-sucking void that David Graham inhabits. Someday we'll discuss why you have this imaginary fight with David Graham, but it's not today. It might, it might be a proxy, like I'm putting things on him because of what he writes about. Yeah, maybe so. Anyway, this show was produced today by Kevin Townsend. You can write us at socialdistance at theatlantic.com. You can also call us at 202-642-6487. Not that many people call us, but many people write us emails. I'm just saying it's fun to listen to your voice messages, but it also I'm not pressuring you. It's fine. You're not going to have to talk to us. It's weird to call a random phone. You don't even have to talk to us. You just talk to the the ether, and then we get to listen, and it's fun for us. But whatever. It doesn't matter. Do what feels comfortable for you. If you like this show and want to access all of The Atlantic's journalism— do that at theatlantic.com slash support us. You can subscribe to our magazine, our beautiful print magazine, and uh, get access to all our articles online. Thank you. Nice to talk to you, Jim. You too, Catherine. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.